Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Jew and Gentile podcast. I am your host, Chris Katolka, and with me is none other than the Jewish sage himself, uh, Mr. Steve Herzig. How are you, sir? Mr. Chris, I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm glad we're back for another week. We've got a great show lined up for our listeners, Steve. Our lecture series, our first numero uno of our lecture series. That's right. We had our first guest lecture, and we're excited to tell you all about it. His name's Basem Eid. He's got a fascinating story, uh, and actually, he's going to occupy our time together on our podcast. We're going to be able to air it for you, but before we do that, Steve, let's end it with a big, here we go. Welcome in, welcome in. I'm so glad that you're with us. Yes, we have Bassem Eid, a Palestinian human rights activist who values Israel, Steve. He values Israel, and he's Muslim. He's Muslim, yeah. And that's important for our listeners to know. Uh, We, of course, would love everyone to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. But we're so excited that a Muslim who is given an understanding as he sees the world and uh, has experienced Israel and I might say Jordan before there was uh, an Israel. No, well, not before, but uh, pre sixty seven before United Jerusalem mm-hmm. um, understands that Jerusalem and that the state of Israel is a good country in a bad neighborhood. And he's going to share all about that. You know, uh, Bassem came to us, uh, and uh, we were glad that we could have him for our first guest lecture series on FOI Equip. So if you enjoy this lecture that Bassem's going to give during the podcast, I want to encourage you to go to foiequip.org. FOI Equip actually sponsors the Jew and Gentile podcast. So if you go there, uh, you'll be able to sign up for all of our future classes that are coming up. And one of them being, Steve, is Paula Korn and Jewish Cuisine. Oh, I could hardly wait for that. I, I am telling you, I I think she's going to be doing it like they do on the Food Network. It's all like the Food Network. And, you know, she's been practicing like it's on the Food Network. And she even has a free giveaway for everybody. Those who come and register for the class are going to get a free uh, FOI Equip cookbook on Jewish food, Steve. I'm all in. I, I'm all in. <laughs> Are you going to cook some of it? I will definitely. I, I actually, because of where we sit and uh, she sends things to us, I actually saw that uh, cookbook. And uh, not only am I in, I'll probably buy some ingredients and cook a few. Things. I like it. I like it. Well, uh, any, everybody, if you're interested in joining Paula Korn's class, getting that free cookbook, then please go to FOI Equip. Uh, dot org and there you can register for her class and upcoming classes as well well steve let's not waste any time let's jump right into basem eid let's go i am so glad that we have basem eid with us he is a palestinian human rights activist and i really think you're going to enjoy this time that we're going to be able to to share together um basem is actually uh, we're recording this because he's in Africa right now, and so uh, I'm sure he'll share about that in a moment. Um, but we've got a great evening lined up for you of, uh, I'm sure, questions that you have about the Israeli-Palestinian uh, conflict, uh, things that you're hearing on the news, what's going on in the Middle East. Well, there's really no better person to help us with this um, than Basem. And so, Basem, it's great to have you on our FOI Equip guest lecture series. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Steve, why don't you go ahead and uh, lead the way then in our discussion with Bassem? I appreciate that, Chris. And Bassam, welcome. It's great to talk to you. I was, we were saying before we officially started, your feed from Africa is better than my feed with Chris in the <laughs> office. 
you actually have a better picture. So they, I, right. kudos to Africa and their uh, web availability and their uh, online uh, cables. Um, yes. You know, I, I've, I've read a, a number of your blogs, uh, Bassem, and I got to tell you, they're such an encouragement to me personally. We're with a group, as, as you know, called the Friends of Israel. And so yes. you're a Palestinian human rights activist. Can you tell us your journey to, to how you would be writing for an Israeli uh, uh, blog and how you're viewed by your own people and how you, how you transitioned or did you transition? I just want to hear your story. It must be yes. fascinating. Yeah. Thank you so much, Steve, for an uh, uh, incredible question. Uh, as you might know, as you mentioned, I am a human rights activist that I spent around 30 years of my life defending the rights of the Palestinians. I started my human rights career with an Israeli organization called B'Tselem mm -hmm. during the first intifada that I used to be in B'Tselem as a field worker who used to go to everywhere in the West Bank or the Gaza Strip to document violations committed in that time by the Israeli army against the Palestinians. I continue my work with B'Tselem till the Oslo Accord signed between the PLO and Israel. As you might know, the PLO arrived to Gaza and Jericho first in May 94. In that time, while I was still working with B'Tselem, I noticed that there are so many violations committed by the Palestinian Authority security forces against the Palestinians. Wow. Wow. Then I decided in that time that I should have to resign from B'Tselem to create a Palestinian organization to deal with the violations committed by the Palestinian Authority against the Palestinians. So in December 95, I founded the Palestinian Human Rights Monitoring Group. And we start, you know, documenting all of these violations committed by the Palestinian Authority. In January 96, I was arrested by Yasser Arafat. You know, this is the price. This is the price, you know, to create a human rights organization under the Arab regime. It's like to commit a suicide. <laughs> Yeah. So I, uh, I was arrested, but I was so lucky that I was arrested only. I kept in jail only for 25 hours. And the only person who interfered directly in my release in that time, the U.S. Secretary, Warren Christopher, under Bill Clinton administration. You know, Bill Clinton administration used to have a very strong relation with Yasser Arafat in that time. And uh, Warren Christopher is the one who picked up the telephone and he talked directly to Arafat and he gave Arafat only five minutes to release me. Is that you know, right? That's amazing. Yeah, it's it such, it such detention by Yasser Arafat 
already gave me a huge impunity from the Palestinian Authority. Don't forget that since 2002 until today, I am living in Jericho in the West Bank, which is completely under the jurisdiction of the Palestinian Authority. Yeah. So uh, that's probably, you know, one of the reasons why I get such kind of courage to come and to write and to publish mainly in the times of Israel and, of course, to any other uh, newspapers. I think that from my work in the human rights field, I start realizing so many things, Steve. The first important thing that I realized that the state of Israel is exists very strongly in the Middle East, and we shouldn't have to believe those Arab leaders who used to tell us that Israel will be thrown into the sea. I don't think that there is enough space in the sea for Israel in its, let's say, territory and in its powerful. I don't think that there is any space. And I think that the Arab leaders recently start realizing how much Israel is a very strong country in two important issues. The first one is the high tech. The second one is security. Look to the Abraham's Accord. What brought the Arab countries to sign normalization with Israel in two years ago. That's because the security issues. <clears throat> I think that the Arabs these days are trying to lay much more on Israel rather than to lay on the United States. I think that Israel is the one who can take the job and who can deal with the whole threats of the Iranians in the region here. I was going to ask you, I was going to ask you, we segued, you segued right into the Abraham Accords, which is fantastic. What's your, what's your, uh, put on your prophecy hat. None of us can prophesy. We're not prophets, but yeah. in your, as you speculate, uh, Talk to us about the Abraham Accords and their influence in the Middle East and where you see it going uh, with the United States under Biden not so happy about the Abraham Accords. They don't talk about it. Uh, yeah, probably Biden is not so happy, but I think that the countries who signed the normalization with Israel are really very happy. So Biden is not in the context here. Mm. You can see tomorrow, the Israeli Minister of Defense, Mr. Benny Gantz, is flying to Morocco. <laughs> is flying to Morocco for three, uh, sorry, the Chief of Staff, the Chief of Staff is flying to Morocco tomorrow for three days to talk with security issues and with selling in hundreds of millions of dollars weapons from Israel to Morocco. I think that that will bring a huge economic prosperity to the Israelis. 
I think that Abraham's Accord, you can see the deadline of the, of the Abraham Accord is economic prosperity to the old Middle East, not only to Israel, not only to the countries who signed the normalization, not only to the Palestinians, but the whole Middle East is going to benefit from a such kind of, of accord. And I really hope, <coughs> I really hope that more and more countries are going to join the Abraham's Accord. And I am a person who is very optimistic that while more and more Arabs will sign normalization with Israel, that's probably in the near future, will help the Palestinians to reach a kind of peace with Israel. Can I ask Bassem, because this, uh, what was going through my mind when you were saying that is it, it sounds like the Palestinians have a choice to make at this point as well as to whether or not they want to join in on the on the Abraham Accords uh, and be a part of that growth. Years ago, I went to uh, uh, Ruben Rivlin's um, uh, house and there was a meeting there. Um, and it was funny to hear them discuss the things we're talking about. This was before the Abraham Accords, that the potential yeah. for economic growth in the Middle East could be a powerhouse in the world if, if Israel and the Arab nations could get their act together and, and work together in high tech and areas of security, all, energy, all of it. But it's interesting, do the Palestinians have a choice right now to either move in the direction that everyone else is going, or could they also at the same time find themselves in a difficult situation if they side with Iran instead of going toward uh, uh, the, the Abraham Accords? Uh, see, you can, when we are talking about the Palestinian leadership, we have two different categories of leadership. You have the Fatah people in the West Bank, and you have the Hamas in the Gaza Strip. Both of them are acting completely to a different agenda. Hmm. And that's one of the major problems of the Palestinians, that they are divided and they are unable to be united anymore in the near future. I think that this is one of the major obstacles towards peace between the Palestinians and the Israelis. I think that the world looks like that the international community is very happy while the Palestinians are really divided. I didn't see even one country around the world who are trying to help the Palestinians to be united, to be together, to put, you know, a specific agenda towards a future peace with Israel. You know, that's leading me to something very interesting. Why the leaders around the world, including President Biden, by the way, why those leaders are supporting the two-state solution for two people, I think that the Palestinian leadership is completely against the two-state solution for two people. Why? Because the Palestinian leadership is much more interesting in a three-state solution for two people. Hamas is defending its own Islamic Emirate in the Gaza Strip. Abbas is defending his own empire in the West Bank and the State of Israel. 
This is how we are living in the past since 2005. And looks like that everyone is so satisfied with his own. So that's exactly the solution that the Palestinians are calling for. Three-state solution for two people. That's all. What do you think is going to happen uh, on the what's called the West Bank uh, under Abbas? Uh, he's in his 80s. I know he's been sick. Uh, uh, I don't know how his health is right now. Are there any potential leaders? And if so, where are they politically? Unfortunately, I didn't see right now any kind of a potential leader among the Palestinians. Uh, don't forget also that Abbas is not allowing uh, new leaders to come out. He is not allowing to form any new political parties, and Abbas want to be the owner of this property, which called the West Bank, with his two sons, of course, not only him. Mm -hmm. So I, I didn't see that there is any potential leader right now. And I believe that while Abbas will pass away, it's not going to be an easy moment to the Palestinians. You know, even the Fatah themselves are so divided. The Fatah themselves, each member of them want to be a president tomorrow morning. So I believe if Abbas will die, some fightings will take place. Probably some assassination will take place among the Fatah themselves. Wow. Leave the Hamas. Hamas is not exist in the West Bank because Israel is existing there. So I am not talking about the Hamas here. I am talking much more about the Fatah party and the probably Israel is the one who should have to interfere in term, you know, to keep the things under control. Otherwise that's probably will harass the internal security of Israel itself. So nobody is talking right now about any uh, potential leader. I want to tell you something very interesting that four months ago, 30 Palestinian personalities from the civil society, uh, uh, political activists, they met in an office, <coughs> sorry, they met in an office in Ramallah and they discussed very interesting topic. The topic was, what is after Abbas? You couldn't believe that five minutes after that meeting started, the Palestinian security forces uh, ride the place, they enter to the building, they arrested the 30 people who was in the room, they took them to the jail. They kept them for around eight hours in jail. And afterwards, they asked them to sign on a commitment that in the future, they will never ever participate in such kind of conference. Okay. So this is Abbas. And Abbas is a person 
who is thinking that he is going to live forever. I don't think that he is thinking about death. I don't think that he is thinking about the future of his own people. And he is just continuing corrupting them economically and politically. Amazing. Amazing. Uh Basem, I remember you saying, we, we met years ago in Washington, D.C. You were speaking right. to the, you were speaking to Congress, actually, about their right. funding of the Palestinian Authority because of uh, the, uh, the curriculum that was being taught uh, at right. that time. Um, but I remember you specifically saying something when you were growing up, I believe, in East Jerusalem, that yes. uh, when Israel came in, uh, they, you were there for that. And you yep. and you saw a transition happen that kind of opened your eyes because you know the way that you were raised this was a horrible thing but then all of a sudden the world around you changed and that kind of right. opened your eyes a little bit I thought maybe you could share about that yes yes uh, indeed Chris I want to tell you that uh, I born in the old city in Jerusalem in uh, in 1958 under the Jordanians. Uh, authorities and I grew up in the in the Jewish quarter by the way uh, till 1966 which means I was around eight years old and in June 1966 which is exactly one year before the 67 war the Jordanian government decided to evacuate 500 Palestinian families from the Jewish quarter to the north of Jerusalem in a place which is still exists called Shafat Refugee Camp, mm. which is under the UNRWA responsibility until today, by the way. So the one who made me a refugee is the Jordanians, not the Israelis. <laughs> And I grown up in that refugee camp for 33 years. I still have six brothers who are still living there. And I used, you know, to go once a week or twice a week to visit them over there. So we grow up in a very poor family, very poor family. I have nine brothers and one sister. We were so poor. But after the 67 war, my father found a very good job in the Hadassah hospital. <laughs> I remember that's probably something in the 1972 or 1973. And he used to get a very good salary in that time. You know, the whole family used to live in two rooms, in two rooms only. <laughs> So while my father start working and getting a very good income, he start adding, you know, one room here, one room here, another floor. And then we became so big and our life completely changed. You couldn't believe that till 73, I don't remember that I know what does it mean a fridge? What does it mean a TV? What does it mean a radio? I don't know. I don't know. Only after the Israelis came in, we start discovering, let's say, the technology in that time. So 
We use, we don't have power in home, man. We don't have power in home. So after the Israelis came and my father worked in Hadassah, we start developing, I can say, every month, every month. And you know, I have a very quiet father who is totally not involved in any politics. You know, he died while he was 82 years old. He never ever been summoned by the police. He never ever been stopped by the police. He drove his car for 25 years without one report, one report. He never get from the police. So I think that we, we really start enjoying, let's say life, uh, since the Israelis almost arrived to the West Bank and, and, uh, and East Jerusalem. And on the other side, Chris, very important point to raise here. I want to tell you that the Gaza Strip used to be belong to Egypt for 19 years, from 1948 till 67. West Bank and East Jerusalem used to be under the Jordanians in that time. Neither the Egyptian nor the Jordanians in that time tried to found a Palestinian state. Neither the Jordanians nor the Egyptian is, it tried to link between the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. Now, the Jordanians and the Egyptians demanding Israel for a Palestinian state. But you was ruling us for 19 years and you never thought to give the Palestinians a state in that time. So unfortunately, this is exactly what the Arab leaders almost did to the Palestinians. Mm. I, have a, I have a question for you, Bassam, in relation Please. to uh, your view of the United States in terms of uh, the negotiations that have gone on sure. through the years. You talk about, you've already mentioned Clinton and Biden. Uh, there's Obama and Bush. Before that, how, how do you feel the U.S. Uh, in relations with the Palestinians and with Israel? And what are your opinions about those? You know, you know, I have really a problem with uh, with uh, with the United States administrations. We, when we I start looking here uh, for the past uh, probably twenty years, you know. The, the, the United States administrations, either they are pro-Israeli or they are pro-Palestinians. And by being a pro-Israeli or being a pro-Palestinian, you will never be able to bring peace between the Palestinians and the Israelis. If I want to compare as an example, between Barack Obama and uh, uh, Ronald Trump, there is a huge, 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 huge difference. In my opinion, Barack Obama for eight years did nothing to the world, did nothing to the world. And you can see the most interesting thing that Barack Obama did when he withdrew from Iraq and he offered the Iraq and the Iraqi on a tray, a golden tray to the terror. Look, nobody is able to fight the terror in Iraq 
because of Barack Obama. This is how we are going to continue Barack Obama, that he is the one who destroyed Iraq, not the Iraqis, Barack Obama. Now, let's go to Donald Trump. You know, sometimes when I am mentioning his name and I am telling people how wonderful this guy is, people getting upset on me. But you know, I remember, I remember Donald Trump in one of the ABAC meetings in Washington, D.C., before he was elected. He appeared there, and he said something very interesting that I will never, ever forget it. What he said, he said, towards the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, I am the one who is going to solve it. And everybody start laughing. Then he continued by saying, I am going to solve it as a businessman, not as a politician, which I completely agree with him. I think that we, the Palestinians, made a huge mistake that we didn't get the deal of the century that he talked about it. <coughs> I think that the deal of century was full, full, full of economic prosperity. Billion, billions of dollars are waiting for that deal. I think that this is the important issue right now. The Israeli-Palestinian conflict will never ever be solved without economic prosperity. Economic prosperity is first, then the solution will be the second. But these days, since the Oslo Agreement until today, everybody is pushing towards the solution, but no one is pushing towards the economic prosperity. And this is why we failed to reach any kind of peace with Israel. I think the international community should have to change its foreign policy towards the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and to start working on the economic prosperity rather than solutions. If you will solve the economic prosperity immediately, that will take you towards future peace between the Israelis and the Palestinians. Which, which demands then, you've written on uh, BDS, boycott divestments exactly. and sanctions. Exactly. Tell us, tell us about some of your writing and your evaluation. Uh, BDS always gets news. I think, you know, I used to call these people as uh, 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 gangsters and thugs. I think that the BDS people used to be jobless and they found a job forever <laughs> because this conflict is not going to be solved. So those people already found a job forever. I think that the BDS is only using the Palestinians. They never fallen in love with us. They never support us. They never try to, to, to provide any economic solution to the Palestinians. It's the opposite. 
I think that they are trying to make our life harder and harder. You know why these Palestinian workers who are working in X factory and that factory will be closed because the activities of the BDS, these Palestinian workers has been kicked out from their jobs and the BDS never ever tried to help them to find a job for them or to finance their life. This is one of the major problem. So the BDS is another organization who are using the Palestinians. They are not helping the Palestinians at all. They are using us like the Arab leaders used us, like the United Nations used us, like the UNRWA used us, like the Amnesty International using us, like the Human Rights Watch using us. So we are only used by those organizations, but those organizations never ever try to provide any help to the Palestinians. What are they, what are they using you, the Palestinian people for? For their own uh, benefit? I think, it's, it, I think that each organization has his own political agenda. And they are just using us in terms to achieve their own goals and their own aims. But the issue is not the Palestinians. The issue is the foreign agenda that those organizations are working on. And this is one of the major problems of the Palestinians. That's exactly the problem right now. We just used by those organizations why they never ever provide any kind of help. Uh, Basem, you actually wrote in an article that you uh, did for Times of Israel, I, you, you sum it up saying, because recently Ben and Jerry um, was, pulled, was influenced by boycott, divestment and sanctions, the ice cream yeah. company. And um, it was a big deal. And you wrote Ben and Jerry's decision to withdraw from the West Bank is nothing but performative activism failing to help Palestinians in any meaningful way. In fact, it is actively harming us in the process. So what someone feels some self-righteousness by thinking we're helping the Palestinians are actually taking money out of their pockets to supply for their families. That's exactly what's really happening. Chris, that's exactly what is happening. I think that we are losing from those people rather than we are benefiting from them. I am very happy, first of all, that Ben and Jerry's already canceled you know, their decision and they came back to the West Bank and they start selling their own products and their own ice cream. You know, I tried to sue them in the United States. Did I you? found a lawyer who already opened a file to one of the New York courts over there. But looks like, looks like to me that the, 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 the administration of the Ben and Jerry's discussed the issue and they found that by boycotting Israel, that's we never ever help the Palestinians. Mm -hmm. So probably this is the main reason I believe that those people getting back to, to their uh, normal. I think that one of the major problem here in the United States 
that the legislators, legislators of the United States should have to consider the BDS as anti-Semite organization. And the legislators in the United States should have to stop any kind of funding if it is coming from any charities or organization to the BDS. And to be clear to that legislators that the BDS movement is just causing harm to the Palestinians rather than it is helping them. I hope that the legislators in the United States will wake up one day and will look to the BDS movement as anti-Semite organization and any activities of the BDS should have to be prohibited mainly on the campuses of the, of the universities in the United States. Bassem, it's, it's so refreshing to hear, uh, hear you speak. I'm look, I wish I could vote for you for some position. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Steve. Thank but, you. But one of, the, one of the articles you wrote, a blog back, way back in June of 2021, Israel is not an apartheid state. I, I thought that was, here's a Palestinian man saying, Israel is not an apartheid state. And then you wrote, right. this government represents the strength of Israel's democracy. That's when Bennett's government was put into place. You yeah. say the government represents the strength of Israel's democracy, a rarity in the Middle East. It also reflects on the diversity of the people of Israel. Can you Comment about that. That's, I mean, we talk about that all the time at Friends of Israel. I'd like to hear right. you talk about it. Yes. Uh, Steve, uh, I am a person who was on four different visits to South Africa. Two times I visited the Apartheid Museum. I saw the videos. I read the history. And what I saw there never, ever exists under the Israelis. Now, for me, the word of apartheid is a racist word rather than it is a political word. The issue between the Palestinians and the Israelis is not racist. It's a political issue. It's not white and black. While you can see in any department in Israel, you can see Arabs working together with Jews over there. And that's never ever happened in the apartheid regime in the South Africa. So those who want to criticize Israel, trying to use is such kind of slogan, which called apartheid. For me, the word apartheid is a slogan. It's not a fact on the ground. I am the one who is living there. I am the one who is, who is, who is uh, uh, developing there. And I know what is going on in Israel. Israel never ever been an apartheid regime or an apartheid state. I think that the world should have to start realizing that the life of the Palestinians under the Israelis is much better than under any other Arab country in the world. Mm. 
That's quite I a visited, statement to make. Wow. I visited Lebanon. I visited Syria. I visited Jordan. I visited Egypt. I visited Tunisia. I visited Morocco. I didn't ever saw the Palestinians in those countries such happy like the Palestinians who are living in Israel. I went to the refugee camps in Syria and in Lebanon. It's unbelievable. Mm. It's unbelievable. A refugee living in a camp in Lebanon is not allowed to leave the camp without a permission. That's never happened in Israel, excuse me. I was living in a refugee camp and then I moved out of the refugee camp without asking the Israeli authorities for any permissions, without. I just changed place. I went on the next day to the Ministry of Interior. I said, I changed an address. Here is my address. And immediately they changed it in my ID. That's never happened in Lebanon. That's never happened in Syria. So I think the Amnesty International, if they want to learn what is an apartheid, they should have to visit Lebanon and Syria. And then they will start realizing that Israel is a, bar a paradise rather than it is an apartheid. I, I'm interested, Bassem, that from your take on this, because, you know, you're talking about politics, Israeli-Palestinian conf uh, uh, conflict and how it's a political issue. Um, yeah. It's not a racial issue. I'm, I'm interested your thought on uh, normally whenever we get a take on what's going on in Israeli politics, we hear it either yeah. from media or we hear it from yeah. some Israeli official. But rare, I've never really asked the question from a Palestinian who lives in Jericho, I mean, I'm sure you keep up with Israeli politics. There's a lot happening in Israel right now. What's right. your take on right. what's going on in the Knesset? And then how is that going to affect what's going on with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? Yeah, I, I, uh, it's it's very interesting question, uh, Chris. Uh, but let me, let me just add another comment uh, towards the apartheid. I think that when Naftali Bennett elected as a prime minister in Israel, I think that he is the one who proves to the world that Israel is not apartheid by joining an Islamist political party in his government. <laughs> you know, Islamist, Islamist, Islamist used to be arrested in the Arab world, except in Israel except in Israel. They are a part of the government, a part of the government. It's reminding me that there was a joke that the President Sisi of Egypt called Naftali Bennett, and he told Naftali Bennett how it could be that we are arresting the Islamic Brotherhood movements while they are joining your government. <laughs> so I think that that's also another proof that Israel is not an apartheid. Now towards the Israeli politics. I think that the Israeli politics can prove one important thing, how much Israel is a democratic country. You see in three and a half years, Israel is going to run the fifth elections. 
the fifth elections. While in the Arab countries, leaders used to rule their people for 30 or 40 years without any elections. I think that that's very interesting. I think that the Israelis are very aware about their own politics. And I believe that uh, Israel knows exactly how to manage itself and how to manage its politics in the meantime. I think that the Israelis are probably getting so tired from such a thing of repeating elections, you know, every six months. But I believe that probably in the coming elections, the Israeli politics will be settled. And I used to say, you know, sometimes that one of the problem of the Israelis and the Palestinians is the lack of a leadership, a lack of a leadership. Unfortunately, the Israelis don't have a strong leadership right now. Palestinians don't have a strong leadership right now. And this is how things, unfortunately, are not going in the direct, uh, in, the, in, the, in the correct direction. I think that it's very difficult in the meantime to look after leaders right now in Israel. It's very difficult. I think if you will come to any Israeli today and ask him who is the only real leader in Israel, everybody will tell you Bibi Netanyahu. He is the last leader right now in, let's say, in the, in the current generation. And unfortunately, Israel lost huge leaders during the, the time. We don't want to talk, you know, about Golda Meir. We don't want to talk about Yitzhak Rabin. We don't want to talk about Ariel Sharon. We don't want to talk about Yitzhak Shamir. We don't want to talk about uh, uh, Beg Menachem Begin. We don't want to talk about those people. Unfortunately, those people will never ever be replaced, unfortunately. Mm. You will never see another Ariel Sharon. You will never see another Yitzhak Rabin. You will never see another Menachem Begin. Those are the real leaders of the state of Israel. Unfortunately, Israel and the Israelis almost lost them. And let me hope, let me hope that probably in the coming two generation or three generation, a new charismatic leaders will appear among the Palestinians and among the Israelis, and then a probably peace will be possible between both of them. Hmm. Uh, Bassem, uh, I'm sure the question on our listeners' minds right now as they're listening to you <laughs> is, what is your reception like in Jericho? What is your reception like in the Palestinian Authority or even just among your neighbors? Um, what They must know you. You're an outspoken person. You're all over the internet. Um, you've reached, uh, you know, I, you were having a, a meeting with um, uh, uh, Dennis Prager on, I mean, that you've, you've, you are definitely uh, a, a mouthpiece uh, for your viewpoints, yeah. but 
are they a minority viewpoint or do you think there's something brewing under the the the, the water that's you know bubbling up and more people think like you I, i'm interested that uh what do you yeah think about? i i think i think uh, chris uh, uh, from what i am hearing what i am watching what i am feeling the majority of the palestinians these days almost lost the trust in their own leadership. Mm. And I'm not talking only about the West Bank, I'm talking also about Gaza. I have a lot of friends in Gaza. Sometimes I used to talk to them and those people used to tell me that if Israel will open one of its messages for two hours, 30% of the youths in Gaza will immigrate to another country. So people just waiting for opportunity. Yeah. People want to flee from, from Gaza. People want to escape from Gaza. People knows that under the Hamas, there is no future, no future. And towards the people in the West Bank, I think that the people in the West Bank trying more and more to focus on their own economic prosperity. That's the most important issue. If you will come today to any ordinary Palestinian in the West Bank and asking him, what are the most three priorities that you are seeking? He will say a job to survive, to secure, the education system and the health system for my children. Nobody is talking about the wall. Nobody is talking about the settlements. Nobody even talking about the foundation of the Palestinian state, which means, in my opinion, the majority of the Palestinians are people who are seeking dignity rather than identity. Mm. We mm. want dignity. And dignity can be approached and achieved only via economic prosperity. Chris, you couldn't believe a Palestinian worker under the Palestinian Authority monthly salary is $400, <laughs> while in Israel it is $3,000. This is the dignity. Yeah. This is the dignity. You couldn't believe workers under the Hamas working 12 hours for $3 a day, $3, 10 Israeli shekel for 12 hours working in the Gaza Strip. Where is the dignity? Where is the dignity here? I think that people start realizing more and more that their future under the Israelis will be much better than it is under the Palestinian Authority. You know, when Israel start talking sometimes, when the right wing in Israel start talking about uh, sometimes how to annex Area C to Israel, Area C in the West Bank, they want to annex it to the, to the state of Israel. When I visited people, Palestinians who are living in Area C, you couldn't believe what <laughs> people asking me. When Israel is going to annex us? When? 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 Yeah, this is, I think that that's showing me 
only one thing, the oppression, the oppression that these Palestinians are living under the Palestinian Authority. Mm. It's an oppression to live under the Palestinian Authority. Look today to the workers. You couldn't believe that 15,000 Palestinian workers every day escape to inside Israel through the wall and through the fence to go to work. He knows he might be shot, he might be injured, he might be killed, he might be arrested, but he is seeking dignity. While he is working in Israel, he can earn at least 500 shekels in a day, but to work under the Palestinian Authority is going to be 50 shekel a day. So I think that people knows exactly what they are doing. And I think that that's showing us how much the Palestinians are really people who are seeking an economic prosperity rather than anything else. Bassem, uh when we started, we told you the audience is basically, our audiences are Christian. And yes. I know that you've uh, written about uh, Christians living under the Palestinian Authority. And yeah. you mentioned specifically Bethlehem and the difference. Yeah. Can you comment about a Christian life in the Palestinian Authority? See, Steve, I just, you know, a month ago, I heard some statistics which is really shocked me, shocked me. The statistics are that during the 80s, during the 80s, the percentage of the Christians among the Palestinians was 20%, 20%. Can you believe how much today Today, it is one person. Can you believe that? Mm. One person. I think that the elections of 2006, when the Hamas won the elections in that time, that's already put the Christians under a huge fear. We know what the Hamas did to the Christians in Gaza. We know how many, how many Christians has been killed in Gaza by the Hamas because they are Christians. Because they are Christians. So when the percentage is dropping from 20% to 1%, then you can understand everything over here. I think that the Christians are very scared these days. And the Christians are trying, you know, to keep themselves out of the frame of politics. The Christians are not participating in any, any political activities, at all not. These people are minority, and there is no one who is going to defend them if these people will be harassed or anything wrong will happen to them. So I think that this is really something very important that the world should have to start dealing with. How the number of the Christians dropped from 20% to 1%.
I think that's really need a huge research by the international community in terms to find out where is the problem and where all those 19% of the Christians disappeared. Yeah. Asem, uh, we only have a few moments remaining, but I want you to speak to our Christian audience who love Israel. But what would you say to them when it comes to the Palestinian people? How, what, what, what can they do uh, as evangelical Christians um, when it comes to the Palestinian people, especially with the viewpoints and the clarity that you have? I'm interested what word you would give to them um, in these final moments. See, in my opinion, in my opinion, those evangelicals, should have to visit as much as they can a Palestinian areas, mm. to meet with Palestinians, to ask the Palestinians what are their real problems? Mm. How is life under Israel and how is life under the Palestinian? I think that the evangelicals can learn a lot about what is really going on over there. I am a person, you know, who used to take a lot of visitors, by the way, to the West Bank, to Nablus, to Ramallah, to Bethlehem, to Hebron, and to make a direct connection with those visitors, with the Palestinians, that they can learn from them more and more about their own life. So I think, that this is one of the major important things that they should have to do because I am a person who believe that those evangelicals probably one day will be used as a bridge towards peace between the Israelis and the Palestinians. Mm. You know, we need a bridge right now. There is unfortunately a very deep gap right now between the Palestinians and the Israelis. Mm -hmm. Leaders couldn't reach each other. We need a bridges. We need someone to build a bridges to let us reach each other. I think that this is one of the main, let's say, messages uh, from me to the to the evangelicals who are visiting Israel from time to time, I know that they are a huge, huge community, and I want also to use this opportunity and to tell them that during September I will be in the United States. So anyone who would like to bring me to his church, to his community, from the evangelicals, I be I will be very happy. To, 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 to come over there and to talk even more and more about the current situation between the Israelis and the Palestinians. Basim, I'll just, I'll, oh, sorry, let me just real quick, how long are you gonna be in the States? I, I am planning right now, you know, I didn't book my ticket yet, but I am planning to be from the 8th of September till the 20th of September. But anyone who might want to invite me after the 20th, still I can't do it because I didn't book yet my, uh, my ticket. 
But Sam, I'll say I'm glad that you said that about being the bridge because uh, we uh, yeah. we recently had a, a a delegation of pastors and friends of Israel workers that went uh, with the Zionist Organization of America uh, to yeah. Israel, and um, yeah. our leader that was on our team, uh, his name's yeah. Tim Munger. He decided to yeah. connect uh, two churches, one in one in East Jerusalem one in uh, Michigan, and they both had the same name, Calvary Baptist yeah, Church, Calvary yeah. Baptist, and he, he introduced the two pastors to one another, and uh, it was a great opportunity for the Palestinians to share with our pastors about what's going on, so I, I agree with you about being the bridge there. We, you know, at Friends of Israel, yes, we value I think that, that as well. that's, that's really very important, and that's exactly what the Israelis and the Palestinians need, the bridge to bring us together, to approach each other in term, you know, probably to solve this uh, unsolvable conflict, let me call it. Yeah. Well, Bassem, uh, can you share with our, um, yeah. our watchers, our listeners, all of it, how they can get a hold of you? Do you want to share? You have a website, I believe, right? Yeah, I have a website. Do you have it? It's, uh, it's bassemeed.com. Very easy. And That's easy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's very easy. Yeah, and they can, uh, of course, uh, reach me via email, info at basemed.com. I love and it. I will be. I will be very happy. You know, if uh, these people will contact me, and I can, I believe I can provide more and more, a first-hand information about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. That's great. But Sam, we want to thank you very much from Friends of Israel Equip, FOI. Thank Equip. you. Thank you so much for the invitation, Chris. All right. Great to see you, my friend. God bless. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. All the best, Steve. Thank you so much. Thank You're you. Welcome. Thank you. All the best. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, I really hope that you enjoyed uh, Bassem. I, I, Steve, I mean, all the stuff that he talked about was so fascinating to me, especially coming from a Palestinian perspective. Well, you know, Chris, I loved his passion. The guy isn't excited at all. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's something in the Mediterranean water. All of us have it, if you're Italian or Greek uh, or uh, Israeli or... A Palestinian. Yep. I mean, there's something where he was, it looked like he was getting up out of his seat yep. <laughs> right into the camera to emphasize what he's saying. You know, I always think the big question with Bassem and anybody who listens to him is, how are you still alive? And we learned it's because of who he knows, you know? I'm telling you, it is, it's not what you know, it's who you know. That's right. Well, we had a great time listening to Bassem. Again, I want to encourage you, if you enjoyed that lecture series, there'll be more to come on uh, uh, with FOI Equip and other classes as well. If you're interested in signing up, please go to foiequip.org. You can sign up to be on our mailing list, which will email list, which will share with you ways that you can get involved and, and all the cl upcoming classes. But even right there on the website, you can sign up for all of our fall classes that we're uh, looking forward to in 2022. But Steve, we have a very quick... Yiddish word of the day, and it's for Basem. So why don't you well, take no, it away? No, you tell us the word. You want me to say it? I want. I. It's actually a German word that's incorporated by Yiddish. So go for it. All right, Steve. Here we go. The Yiddish word of the day is for our good friend Basem because he is a mensch. He's a mensch. He's a mensch. Steve, what is a mensch? A mensch. Actually, the literal translation is a human being. So we say, what? What is a human being? Of course, he's a human being. In Yiddish, mensch means 
you're a good human being. I always give the example, you're stuck, you know, your car blows a tire, you're sitting on the freeway, <laughs> and, you know, you put the sign out, you got the flashers up, and you're, you stand, you're looking around, people just zoom, zoom, zoom. And you're just saying, oh, man, I forgot my cell phone. Who am I going to call? And all of a sudden, somebody pulls over. Not only do they pull over, they say, oh, yeah, where's, where's your spare? They jack the car up. They fix the car. And off you go. You say, man, that person was a mensch. Um, <laughs> that is a mensch. He's a mensch. And that's exactly what Bassem is. He's a mensch. We want to thank Bassem for coming on and being a part of FOI Equip as our very first guest lecture. I think it was a really encouraging one. Uh, Steve, um, I know that we've got a lot more coming up with FOI Equip that people can get involved with, um, but we also have our Bridges program This that's going to be um, launching this fall as well. You want to share about that really oh, quick? Oh, Bridges is it's so exciting to me, Chris. We are raising up, uh, Friends of Israel is, uh, I, I sh corrected, the Lord is raising up through Friends of Israel, mm. a group of people who are interested in learning about how to communicate truth, how to demonstrate their their inherent love for the Jewish people. God's put that in their heart. And so we have an eight-week program, and during those eight weeks, uh, there's fellowship amongst people all over, not just the United States, Chris, we've had them all over the world. Yep. And they come together. Bruce Scott does an amazing job. Uh, teaching, talking, fellowshipping, and then they're given assignments, things that they can try out in their Jerusalem, their locale, and they come back the next week and they talk about, look what happened, look what God did. Yep, It's an amazing thing, and oh, the cost, it's a heavy burden. Chris. It really is. I mean, I'm sorry to say that it's free. <laughs> You can't we, beat we that get deal. Bupkis. I know. You know that. <laughs> we work really, really hard. Our team works really, really hard. But you know, honestly, the payoff for us is seeing all of the believers in the Lord Jesus coming to learn how to show the love of the Messiah to their Jewish friends. And so that is the reward for us. And um, but it's free for anybody who wants to come. We'll have an interest meeting uh, coming up in the future, and we will share details of that with our podcast listeners as well. You know, Chris, it's great to be able to trans form or translate the passion we have mm -hmm. into the hearts and minds of other people so that their passion could be acted out. What it, a tremendous thing. I totally agree. But Steve, that's all that we have time for today. I want to thank our listeners for being a part of the Jew and Gentile podcast. Hey, you know what? If you go to FOI Equip right now, you can actually go and say hi to me and Steve. We actually have a section <laughs> on the FOI Equip website that says, say shalom. And you can write something right in. Let us know what you think. Also, if you're listening on Apple, you could rate our program and that will help advance the Jew and Gentile podcast to the top of the list. So the more that you all comment and give us good reviews, the higher our listing goes, which means more people are listening to the Jew and Gentile podcast. Thank you so much for being a part of the program today. We'll see you next week.